0: Niagara Falls has probably gained more notoriety from all the death-defying stunts, such as tightrope walkers, swimmers, and high divers, not forgetting the on-purpose suicides, than for its natural beauty or its contribution to lighting up a nation. In a time when wing walkers, daredevils, P.T. Barnums, and Houdinis are all the rage, here is the story of one woman who wanted her piece of notoriety and ended up getting anything but. The first woman to go over the falls and the very first to take on horseshoe falls in a barrel, promising a drop-off of over 188 feet, has a story to tell. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The Cataracts Journal on October seventeenth, nineteen 1901 reads, quote, Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor of Bay City, Michigan, has been in town for a week arranging to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Mrs. Taylor announces, frankly, her feat is to make money to provide for herself, believing as the only person ever to perform the stunt, she will be a great drawing card on the lecture platform and in shows. Attempts have been made to induce her to alter her plans and make a trip through the Whirlpool Rapids, but she has steadfastly refused and yesterday afternoon she declared she'd go over the falls on the coming sabbath end quote. by 1900 niagara falls was known as suicide's paradise because no one survived going over the falls to do so would be almost to reverse the natural flow of the river itself journalist christopher turner describes it as if quote the ceaseless roar of water over the falls seems to symbolize the inevitability of death. End quote. I've never made a fortune, she would lament to those asking why she would consider such a terrifying stunt. She'd say, quote, Many of my relatives are now concerned with my welfare. Many of them shun me as though I were afflicted with the plague. End quote. But she was determined to be independent and make her own way. And to her, this was the only way. She was one of eight children growing up on a farm, her family settling in Bay City, Michigan. She was considered the dreamer of the family and would prove them right. Born on October twenty-fourth, 1838, she lived comfortably. Even after her father's death when she was 12, her family was able to support themselves without a fear of scarcity. Annie simply wanted to feel that way for the rest of her life. She was sent away to a seminary along with two of her older brothers for her education. It was very disciplined, and she excelled in her studies. She would marry David Taylor, who was her friend Jenny's older brother when she was 18 in 1855, and they would soon have a son. Their son would sadly die within days of his birth, and then, not long after, her husband would give his life serving for the North in the Civil War. She was 25 years old, alone, and suddenly had to fend for herself. She enrolled in the Normal State School at Albany, and completing the course after three years, she was certified as a teacher. She took her first position as a high school educator in San Antonio, Texas. The widow Taylor would enjoy that for a while, then continued her studies to include dance and music. This new training would allow her to travel and offer her services for a time wherever she decided to stop. She was able to see much of the country as she danced her way from state to state. But it certainly didn't stop her from finding adventure. Adventure she wanted, adventure she got. At some point in her life, she survived an earthquake in South Carolina. She invested in a clergyman who swindled her out of $1,700. And when Mrs. Taylor was in Texas, she was accosted by bandits while riding a stagecoach. They told her to give them all of her money, and she refused. She had $800 in the folds of her dress and wasn't about to part with it. She would later write in her memoir, quote, blow away, I would as soon be without my brains as without money, End quote. Did I mention she was chloroformed and robbed also while in Texas? She also survived a house fire in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which took quite a toll on her as she lost pretty much all of her belongings. Imagine her surprise when she discovered she was running low on money and needed to come up with something soon or run the risk of becoming a burden on her family or perhaps the poorhouse. Here is when she found her way back to Michigan in 1898 and she attempted for the first time to open a school of her own. Instead of just bouncing from city to city, she became a business owner, a school of dance and etiquette. Anyone who has ever opened a business can relate to the constant daily struggles that that kind of undertaking comes with it. Day in, day out, and the first years are the hardest. She would never make it to that magical day when it became easier. Oh sure, the business would support her, but not as she had been accustomed. She felt that she was working too hard for such a small sum to live on. She was determined there had to be another way. The thought of living a life less than what she had been accustomed to, literally, <laughs> drove her to the brink. She would tell a reporter, quote, For two years I have been constantly studying, when not occupied in teaching, what I could do to make money, to make it honestly and quickly. All kinds of schemes ran riot through my brain. Reading the New York paper about people going to the Pan American Exposition and from there to Niagara Falls, the idea came to me like a flash of light Go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. No one has ever accomplished this feat, and this, if well managed, should bring me ready money. End quote. For years, Decades even, thrill-seekers and adventurers have been tested the frothing, swirling waters at the base of the falls, trying to bring it to heel. Tightrope walkers had walked over the falls. Some had even ridden bicycles, done it blindfolded, with baskets on their feet, or pushing a wheelbarrow. Others have climbed to the sides and dove into its raging depths, hoping to be strong enough to fight the currents to draw breath again. Many have barreled, literally, across the whirlpool and came out alive. Not all, but some. And since that first time dating all the way back to 1827, daredevils have tried to outdo the last attempt. And it had to be something new, something different. No one wanted to be a second at anything in a sport such as this. The throngs of people weren't going to keep coming back paying good money to something that they had already been proven could be done. There had to be a new sense of dread, or fear, something that would draw and hold the spectator's gaze until the final moments of victory, or defeat. As her idea buzzed in her head, she would write, These circumstances and conditions led several to look about Niagara in hopes of discovering some other route to golden fame. Of course, there was the Falls, that stupendous downpour of water that drops the overflow of Lake Erie to the stram that runs so swiftly onto old Ontario. The falls of Niagara were there, and had been there for centuries, but even the ambitious men and women who desired to link their names forever with Niagara and its wonders looked upon it as too great a proposition for them to trifle with. They wanted fame, they wanted dollars, but none of them sought death and it was written all about Agra, on the tongues and faces of the oldest and youngest residents, that whoever dare try to conquer this noble and sublime cataract would surely go down to the grave, a grave marked by a monument bearing a statement of the occupant's foolishness in presuming to pass over the precipice of Niagara and live." By deciding to go over Horseshoe Falls in a Barrel, she would claim a few firsts. The first at going over the falls, period. The first to do it in a barrel. The first female. And the oldest female. She would be 63 when this event was scheduled to happen, even though she told her manager she was only 42. She believed she would get better press that way. Annie would write in her memoir, Nobody believed that a woman would require but a glance at an awful plunge over the falls to convince her that death lurked in those waters, eager to continue the unbroken record of fatalities on the list of those who had involuntarily been caught in the suction of the upper rapids and swept over the frightful brink to the chasm below. End quote. The Pan American Exposition also happened to be going on during that time, and she knew she could draw an even bigger crowd. People coming to the area for the first time for the exposition would naturally want to visit the falls. Might as well give them a show as well. She could practically count the piles of money that would rush her way from the new throngs of adoring fans. She would go to her bed weary each night from the thousands of photos onlookers would demand from her. In an interview with the Detroit Free Press in December of 1901, she says, quote, I had lost $8,000 some years ago in Chattanooga and my classes in dancing and physical culture did not bring in money fast enough to suit me. So I looked around for something that nobody had ever done before as a means to make some money. That is rather difficult to find. The idea of going over Niagara came to me in an instant and I studied the conditions fully before I embarked on the trip and I made the venture with every confidence that I would come out unharmed, End quote. She would go on to say, quote, I do not wish to be classed with women who are seeking notoriety. I am not going over the falls as a mere act of bravado. I feel that something may accrue from it in a financial way, End quote. And saying that, my friends, was her first mistake, as you'll hear later. She went about designing the barrel for her stunt and supervised its construction by a local cooper. He was most reluctant at first, but her relentless pursuit of his skill made him finally agree to do the work. She would say, quote, I selected the lumber to see that each piece was perfect and stood by and watched as the barrel was made. I had each stave oiled, thinking that it would shed water better because of the oiling, End quote. That was probably the real reason he didn't want to take the job. No artisan appreciates a critical eye hovering over their shoulder commenting on every stave. The barrel was oblong and tapered slightly at the ends. It was held together by ten iron bands with a rivet at every four inches and an anvil weighing one to two hundred pounds secured on the bottom to function as a ballast. This would allow the barrel to remain upright throughout the journey minimizing additional injuries that might occur from tossing and turning end over end. Annie designed a special harness to help keep her steady, and thick mattress pads were also added along the walls, not giving her much room to move. This would be her vehicle to challenge the 188-foot drop. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally-derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. Niagara Falls piqued the interest of people sometime after the War of 1812. Apparently the greenish-blue waterfalls had been relatively unnoticed until a bitter battle came underway along the Niagara River. But it wasn't until the 1820s that the tourism of the area really started to kick in. Bridges were slapped together to connect the American side across to Goat Island to view the falls from up close. Boats could be hired to bring people in from either shore below the falls. On the Canadian side, They were building up the tourist traps as well. They offered guides you could hire to bring visitors behind the Horseshoe Falls themselves. The Bluff on both sides was already being developed with observation decks, roads for easy access, bars, restaurants, shopping, and theaters. At this time, three hotels in particular would be built on the most scenic of locations. In fact, it was the owner of these three hotels who came together for the first over-the-falls stunt recorded in Niagara Falls history. William Forsythe of the Pavilion Hotel, John Brown of the Ontario House, and General Parkhurst Whitney of the Eagle Hotel. Remember how you were a kid and would send stuff floating down the current of a creek or a river? And you might up the stakes by adding a sail made from a leaf. Or, if you're feeling crazy, you might add a grasshopper that you caught to ride your stick boat through the water, rushing between the rocks completely against his will. Just me? Well, use your imagination with me, because that's how I picture this whole Schooner Michigan debacle came about. The wealthy men sitting in a parlor, smoking cigars dipped in brandy, twisting the corners of their mustache, dreaming of ways to drum up publicity. For some reason, Forsythe acquired an old schooner that had been retired from its working days on Lake Erie. And after one brandy too many, they thought, It might be a brilliant idea to send this old schooner over the falls. And then, as brilliant ideas do, it snowballed. Not just send it over the falls. Let's fill it with animals. Wild animals. And they'd have a party. A huge party. A date was picked and a shaky plan was set in motion. Here's the breakdown of their brandy logic. The ship was a former merchant vessel, so it was used to cargo. It still floated, just wasn't as straight and true as she was in her younger days. They decided that as long as the ship stayed in the deepest water as it traveled, it shouldn't break apart. I'm not sure which of the wild animals they had in mind for steering the vessel, however. Oh, and on that topic, the animals—they figured as long as the animals were young and quote, possessed great muscular power end quote, and remained inside the vessel until the end, there was quote, a great possibility many of them would come away unharmed. End quote. Perhaps they could have slept it off the next day, and nothing would have come of it. But one of the three had already printed up flyers and began dispersing them everywhere. The pirate Michigan with a cargo of ferocious wild animals will pass the great rapids and falls of Niagara, 8th September 1827 at 6 o'clock. Short and simple. And then, what with boys in men's bodies and men's pocketbooks do, they decided to go with a pirate theme. The advertisements called the vessel the Pirate Michigan. It was painted to look like a pirate ship, and dummies dressed in pirate garb were tied to the top. Well, now this was a the thing. They had to go through with it. All they had to do now was find the wild animals. On an advertisement printed in the August eighteenth, 1827 edition of the Buffalo Emporium and General Advertiser, read in part, quote, it is our intention to set adrift within a mile of the falls at this place, the largest sail vessel on Lake Erie with a number of hardiest animals such as bears, wolves, etc. End quote. The ads placed in the newspapers and on flyers promised panthers, wildcats, and wolves, but what they came up with was a buffalo, two small bears, two raccoons, a dog, 15 geese, two fox, and an eagle. The promoters claimed their vision of the collection of birds was that of the winged creatures rising up through the mists and flying off in all directions. And what a thrill it would be to see animals swimming to the surface through the froth and spray in triumph of their daring spectacle. There was even a plan to donate them to museums afterwards. The promotion did work. One man, Mr. Boniface, thinking outside the box, not being a part of the restaurant owner's club, set up tables and chairs on Goat Island just above the falls. He served appetizers, wine and champagne, and his impromptu venue was packed. Unfortunately, instead of reserving spaces in advance, he treated it like a restaurant where people usually pay following their meal. It sounds like a perfectly normal thing to do. However, when the events began... Everyone jumped up from their seats and ran to an observation deck so as not to miss anything. The Buffalo Courier reads: quote, A wag raised the cry, "The schooner is coming!" No time to be lost. The guests sprang from their meals and repaired with all possible speed to the opposite shore, leaving for the astonished Mr. Boniface an empty table as the only compensation for his trouble. End quote. On September sixth, with great fanfare. The Pirate Michigan was towed into Navy Island by Captain James Ruff. They made a lot of money as around 10,000 people showed up for the spectacle. As you can imagine, there were pictures, whining and dining, and you could even tour the inside of the pirate vessel to view the animals who were either chained or kept in cages. At promptly 6 o'clock, spectators were to take their places, the schooner was released into the rapids of the Niagara River and obediently headed towards the falls. Cheers were heard among the crowds as the pirate Michigan picked up speed. Bouncing against the rocks at the beginning of the rapids, the hull was ripped open and began taking in water. One bear wasted no time in jumping ship. He was able to swim to shore, scattering the crowd in all directions in a hail of screams and oaths until he was captured and later put on display. The other bear, too, scrambled for high ground, but was able to escape to Goat Island. The Michigan bumbled its way down the river, and a raccoon was seen climbing up the mast seeking refuge. In an instant, the huge vessel swirled sideways and looked like that's how it would hit the falls, but as it continued, the back end got caught on some boulders, and the front soon pointed toward the falls. Spectators say it paused at the precipice, bobbing back and forth as they held their breath. And then suddenly, with a loud crack, the ship split in two. The mast, holding the raccoon, broke. The back end of the ship looked as if it were floating for only a moment before it followed the front piece, wood splintering and shattering as it disappeared over the edge. The crowds erupted with praise and focused their attention on the whirlpool of frothing water below. Soon, pieces of the ship began to appear, some calmly slipping to the surface and continuing downriver, and others shot out from under the falls like a cork from a champagne bottle. Yes, yes, I'm getting to that part. There was no winged display of geese or majestic flight of our nation's bird there was one goose that popped out of the water, missing an eye, but managed to survive the adventure. The others, however, did not make it. As the press questioned the promoters about the animals, they admitted knowing most of the animals would not make it. The buffalo was chained to the deck of the ship, after all, but they explained that he was old and he was going to die in a few days anyway. The birds were released from their cages, but were kept on the lower deck to delay their flight. I guess in the chaos, they did not see the exits. And the dog, well, he got a ticket on this one-way trip because, supposedly, he was bad. He bit someone. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So, again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! To get the most bang for her buck, Annie hired promoters to garner attention for her upcoming stunt. Frank Russell was known about the Daredevil's Fair as a high-dive promoter. Annie wrote to him imploring his services. This is when she gave her incorrect 20-plus year difference in age. So, when she first greets the press, they are practically stunned to silence, expecting a... Much younger woman, and they might have also been accustomed to a flashier personality. Being told that there was a new exhibitionist on the scene, the press were obviously curious. Then to find out it would be a woman, as up until this point almost every stunt was performed by a man, they couldn't wait to speak to her. When she finally arrives, standing before them, first of all, she is obviously not 42, She is very prim and proper, straight-laced and long-winded. Nor is she an athlete of any kind, and to her credit, never claimed to be. With the tiny glitch about her age, that was really the only thing she fudged on. She was very upfront and honest about all other things, maybe a bit too much. Again, up until this point, Every feat tackled on the books so far has been to prove a certain kind of athleticism, celebrating bravery, similar to a conquering hero. And here stands a woman blatantly proclaiming that she's doing this for the money. She was not winning fans. On October 23rd, 1901, the day of, Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor showed up wearing a heavy black skirt and white blouse. No sequins, no tights, nothing flashy. She was not what the crowd was expecting. Not even a cape. She hired two men to man the rowboat and to help her get secured safely into the barrel. Crowds were beginning to amass on both the American and Canadian side. Annie's insides had to be shaking. If not from fear and excitement, then, perhaps, the chill in the air. The two men, Robinson and Truesdale, were hesitant. The weather report said there were to be, quote, brisk to high winds out of the southwest and becoming westerly Thursday evening, end quote. The winds were already kicking up and was making the waters choppy and the launch more difficult than they expected. They grounded the rowboat on Grass Island. The two men planned to wait a few hours to see if the wind would die down. Robinson would later explain that the wind was so strong he was afraid that they would all go down over the falls, boat, barrel, and crew, and he wasn't prepared for that kind of risk. They gave it a few hours, but there was no change. Robinson and Truesdale made the call. They were canceling the event. By the time they made it back to shore and Mrs. Taylor exited the boat, There were only a few stragglers bracing against the wind to watch. People on the Canadian side received word that the event was canceled, but no one bothered to tell the spectators patiently waiting on Goat and Three Sisters Island that it had been aborted. Many waited until dark, disappointed to be sure, but perhaps even a little miffed. October 24th, 1901. Today is Annie Edson Taylor's birthday. She is 63 years old this day and ready to take on Niagara Falls, one way or another. There would be no turning back. They had arrived a little after 2 p.m., and even as her crew finished up the last-minute tinkering, a police officer was approaching. Racing against time, they piled into the rowboat as Officer Egan began shouting from the shore for them to return immediately. They ignored his warnings. The barrel floated along behind them as they raced away from the shore, Mrs. Taylor making it perfectly clear that she insisted being positioned inside her barrel in the Canadian current. They unlatched the lid and she slipped inside. A leather harness wrapped around her waist and over her shoulders was fastened into place, and the thick pillows inside protected her body, but she also brought along her lucky heart-shaped pillow to cushion the top of her head. She recalls in her memoir, quote, I then took off my hat, street skirt, and coat, and entered the barrel, the barrel being placed in the water. When all was in readiness, the head of the barrel was screwed down perfectly tight, a tube inserted, and an air pump was used to fill the barrel with fresh air. I then put a cork in the end of the tube I held in my hand, end quote. The air that was pumped into the barrel that she referred to was done with a bicycle pump, just before her barrel was launched and then corked from the inside. She was terribly afraid of running out of oxygen during her short trip. However, her additional emergency tactics, at least in this regard, proved kind of pointless since the barrel was not airtight. She figured that out in the first few moments as freezing cold water soaked her feet. Before they fastened the lid, she was to have said, quote, I'll not say goodbye, but au revoir. Until we meet again. I am positive I will come out alive. The Buffalo Courier reported, Truesdale bent over the barrel and asked if everything was satisfactory. She replied that she could see daylight through a small chink in the top of the barrel and asked that it be stopped up. A piece of rag was stuffed into the crack and upon again being asked if things were all right, Mrs. Taylor replied in the affirmative. Another hold up. Quote, when about two hundred yards from the Canadian shore, knocks were heard on the barrel. Truesdale asked what the trouble was, and the woman's reply came faintly that the barrel was leaking and that a pailful of water had entered. He shouted that it was all right, as she would be over the falls in the next five minutes and in that short time would not allow enough water to do harm. End quote. The men cut the barrel loose, patting the top of it in a wish-you-luck kind of way, and at 4.05 p.m., she was set adrift. Annie Taylor drifted away from the boat. She later write, No human power could avail me, for I was started on a trip no traveler had ever taken. My heart swelled, and for some moments I felt as though I were being suffocated. But I determined to be brave. By a supreme effort of will, I calmed myself at once and began earnestly to pray. If it was God's will to spare my life, if not, to give me an easy death. A reporter would recall The barrel was plainly visible to the crowds which congregated every point of vantage. Both banks of the river were black with people, and on Goat Island and Three Sisters Island and Terrapin Point, hundreds of people had gathered. From a New York Times article, quote, From the spot where the rowboat left the barrel, the current runs frightfully swift and soon breaks over the reefs that causes the water to toss in fury. The barrel was weighed with 200-pound anvil and it floated nicely in the water, Mrs. Taylor apparently retaining an upright position for the greater part of the trip down the river and through the rapids. Fortunately, the barrel kept well within the deep water, and except for passing out of sight several times in the white-crested waves it was in view for the greater part of a mile End quote. in a later article by historian patrick siriani he writes quote, "her barrel staunch as a barrel could be made was twirled and buffeted through those delirious waters but escaped without any serious contact with rocks as it passed through the smoother swifter waters that rushed over the abyss it rode in an almost perpendicular position with its upper half out of the water end quote. this was the work of the anvil secured on the bottom this would aid her not only in breathing but by keeping the barrel upright most likely saved her life had it turned over and landed on its head mrs taylor may have been crushed by the weight of her body and her neck broken she'd say quote, i felt as though i was being knocked to pieces and churned all over I struck rocks three times, and the water seemed to come in the barrel everywhere. At 422, the barrel reached the brink of the precipice. Annie would write, I tore the cushion from my head and placed it under my knees and dropped to the bottom of the barrel. The barrel seemed to pause for one second, and then, as swift as thought, it made the awful plunge. The crowds gathered, collectively held their breath in suspense, and then, a second, which felt like minutes, the barrel, still upright, tipped over the falls. The Buffalo Courier would write, quote, It was suspended on the brink, and then it plunged over, feet first and was lost in the mists and turmoil below. It seemed but a minute before the barrel was sighted below the falls, end quote. Andy would say, quote, I knew I was falling by the feeling that something had given out from under me. The sensation was one of indescribable horror. I felt as if all nature was being annihilated. End quote. Luckily, the falls seemed to swaddle the barrel as it descended instead of launching her into the air. This meant she flowed with the water and would have softened the impact once she reached the bottom. Annie would recall. Quote, there was no sensation of striking the water in the lower river. I simply knew I was in the terrifying cauldron at the base of the falls. The importance of landing successfully also had to take into consideration the sharp-edged rocks and, of course, the whirlpool created by the churning water being deposited by the gallons with immense force. One of her greatest fears, in addition to suffocation, was not being able to get out of the water below the falls and ending up in the whirlpool via the rapids. But that was not a concern. Her barrel did swirl around for some time, and she would recall this was where she sustained the majority of her injuries. After a few moments, the onlookers had lost sight of the barrel. It was indeed caught in the violent whirlpool and tossed behind the waterfall. She would write, Slowly I arose, but, unfortunately on coming to the surface, I came under the falling of water and was carried back to the sheet that tumbles over the precipice. It was then I began to suffer. The barrel was whirled like a dasher in a churn. Lifted, I should think, four or five feet clear of the water and thrown violently about, at the same time turned around and around with the greatest velocity, struck on the rocks. And each moment water was forcing itself in at the point where the anvil at the bottom had been perfectly put on as the barrel turned violently around and around the sensation was terrible end quote. as the barrel lolled against the rock. Engineer John Ross of the Maid of the Mist retrieved the barrel they hemmed and hawed, afraid to open the barrel for sure, believing she was dead. There was no sound coming from inside; little did they know. She had slipped into a semi-unconscious state. But once he removed the lid and fresh air entered the barrel, Annie Taylor was much revived. John Ross would announce to the waiting crowd, quote, The woman is alive! To which Mrs. Taylor responded, Yes, she is, though very much hurt and confused, end quote. At 4.40, she was rescued from the barrel. Word spread up the falls along the banks by megaphone, and horns blared their happy response. The crowd roared. Twenty minutes. Just twenty nail-biting, stomach-churning minutes for the journey to be complete. She was instantly named the Goddess of Water. She achieved the instant celebrity status that she had hoped for, and before long, poetry, songs, and plays had been penned in her honor. She would write in her memoir quote, how I would have liked to watch the people on the river bank. I could imagine them straining their eyes for a glimpse of the barrel tumbling and tossing in huge waves. In another five seconds I should reach the crest of the falls. At that instant thousands would hold their breath and stare in fascinated horror. They'd tremble with expectation as I dropped over the brink, down in the chasm far below, end quote. In addition to her rescuer, the head engineer of the boat company, Maid of the Mist, John Ross, some accounts say, waiting on the Canadian shore were Carlyle Graham of Whirlpool fame, Kid Bailey, an expert swimmer, and Harry Williams, owner of the Lafayette Hotel. The New York Times would print, quote, A widowed woman, Mrs. Anna Edson Taylor, safely passed over Niagara Falls in a barrel this afternoon. The trip from end to end was witnessed by several thousand people. The fact that Mrs. Taylor failed to go on Wednesday did not lessen the confidence of the public in her. Still, everybody was agreed that it was a foolhardy trip. It was beyond any conception but her own that she would live to tell the story. But she is alive tonight, and the doctors say as soon as she gets over the shock, she will be all right. She is suffering greatly from the shock. She has a three-inch cut in her scalp, back of the right ear, but how or when she got it, she does not know. She complains of the pain between her shoulders, but this is thought to be from the fact that her shoulders were thrown back during the plunge, as she had her arms in straps and these undoubtedly saved her neck from breaking. In passing over the falls, she admits to have lost consciousness. While thanking God for sparing her life, she warns everybody against trying to make the trip. So severe was the shock that she wanders in her talk, but there is little doubt that she will be in good condition within a day or two. The Buffalo Courier chimed in with their report on the very next day, Mrs. Taylor the first human being to go over Niagara Falls and lives daring heroine of the falls easily queen of all adventurers who have risked their lives in the fatal cataract of Niagara. She makes the perilous trip and lives to tell her tale of risk. The article continues incorrectly, as we now know. Quote, Animals have successfully made the passage of the falls, and aged residents of Niagara Falls will recall the incident of a bear being sent adrift in the river in a boat, plunging over the precipice and swimming ashore at the foot. But Mrs. Taylor has no human competitors for notoriety of this sort. End quote. The mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, at the time, McGillie S.B. Butler, would present Mrs. Taylor with a certificate confirming that she truly and most definitely completed this daring feat. It reads, Niagara Falls, New York, April 1, 1902. To whom it may concern, this is to certify that on October 24, 1901, Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor went over the Horseshoe Falls at Niagara Falls in a barrel and survived. Migelly S. B. Butler, Mayor. That makes it official. Annie Edson Taylor was the first to go over Horseshoe Falls and live to tell about it. She would write solemnly in her memoirs quote, I had very urgent reasons for making the trip, and if I had failed or been prevented, I certainly would have committed suicide, end quote. Annie, although she was battered and bruised with a large cut on her forehead, she was triumphant. She proved everyone wrong and was perhaps looking forward to rubbing their noses in it, eh, just a little. She was also looking forward to resume once again the lifestyle she preferred and wouldn't begrudge the fame that the fortune was sure to bring. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.radtagnetwork.com, And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. This was it. It was happening. There were crowds in the thousands, but she had been expecting tens of thousands. No sooner had the local interviews began, she was escorted away by a doctor claiming she was suffering from brain fever. During this era, brain fever could be diagnosed for everything that we now recognize as scarlet fever, which causes hallucinations and paranoia, all the way up to encephalitis, which was the swelling of the brain. But the definition, particularly to this time, refers to, quote, an acute nervous breakdown and or temporary insanity due to extreme emotional distress, often with associated psychosomatic illness or fever-like symptoms. I mean, to be fair, she did just throw herself over Niagara Falls. Because of this, much to her dismay, She missed the largest and best window to reap the benefits from everyone's euphoria and probably most willing to shell out a dime or two for a photograph. This would literally cut her publicity in half. Yes, she got tons of local news coverage, but again, nothing was shared through the wire to other news outlets. Luckily, she was invited to the Pan American Exposition in New York City on its last day. People stood in line for over six hours just to see her. She was excited at her future prospects if her present popularity was any indication. She was able to pose for pictures and earn a bit of income, which she soon discovered her manager would take the lion's share. Annie would write, My great mistake was in selecting a manager, F.M. Russell of Bay City, who was well-recommended, but who proved in every way unworthy the trust reposed in him, So, here's what happened. Frank Russell, the man she hired as her promoter, really didn't believe she would go through with it, so did not do his best in promoting it. For many of his other events, he would have set up bleachers to sell tickets. There were none. He did not inform the press here and beyond. The local press was there, of course but it was not released to the other major press outlets. The only thing set up for income was signed photographs. Yes, she did appear on the last day of the Pan-American Exposition, but that was not really his doing. The exposition invited her. And yes, she was exposed to thousands of people enjoying the festivities. However, Russell didn't hustle. The only thing he said he could book were the dime museums. Annie Taylor was horrified at the thought of appearing in such places. She believed herself above the P.T. Barnums of the tour circuit, so he got her gigs for department stores. She would literally be the window display. Her and her barrel, as people walked by on the streets, they could look over and see her sitting there. Also, not what she had in mind. Frank Russell realized he messed up. Apparently, there was a lot of money that could be made from this crazy old woman. I'll tell you right now, he did not do the right thing. Instead, he chose to steal the barrel and make money for himself. He would tour with the barrel making money from its appearances and Annie would see nary a dime. She was completely incensed, and that's fair. Ann Taylor would spend most of her money on its retrieval. She wrote a letter to Al Tanner in March of 1902. Mr. Tanner was the manager of the Lyceum Theater. She writes, I write from Cincinnati. In the months since accomplishing my feat over the falls, I have traveled through Michigan, Ohio, and South Carolina, giving lectures and appearing where possible. My great mistake was selecting as manager Frank M. Russell, He keeps most of the takings for himself. Now he has absconded with my barrel. I have reason to believe that he has secreted the barrel in Bay City, Michigan. Now, Mr. Tanner, I want to ask you if you cannot see some way to lend me the money to go after the barrel. It would cost $25. I've tried every way possible to get the money and despair as bitter as death has settled down upon me. I plead with you in God's name to try in some way to help me. Be my friend, and I will be yours, for I can make money with the barrel. Sincerely, Annie Edson Taylor. And yea, Somehow she did get her barrel back. Although, I do not know the particulars. She quickly hired a new promotions man, William Banks. He set to work getting her gigs at county fairs. They weren't making too much money, and he supposed that it was Annie's frumpy appearance. No one, several months after the fact, really wanted to stand in line to talk to a schoolmarm. So this manager also absconded with the barrel, but he instead kept doing the tourist circuit. He was making plenty of money because he hired a young actress to play the part of Annie Edson Taylor. The real Mrs. Taylor, however, saw none of the profits. She spent hundreds of dollars trying to track him down, bringing her down to her last dimes, but to no avail. But wait, there's more. The two men that helped her in the rowboat, Robinson and Truesdale, would later film an empty barrel going over the falls and sell it to the Nickelodeons and make a tidy sum. Annie Edson Taylor made none. So, at this point, everyone was making a living off of this daring feat, except Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor. Add a little gas to the fire, Martha Wagenfuhrer, who was a Buffalo native, had borrowed the barrel of famed daredevil Carlyle Graham and followed in his footsteps, achieving a short-lived fame as being the first female to safely navigate the rapids and whirlpool at the base of the falls alone in a barrel. She had completed this stunt only a month before, and suddenly her press coverage as being made of the rapids was running low. She was insultingly overshadowed by an elderly school teacher. So she would tell the local papers, This woman, Mrs. Taylor, I see by the papers, went over the Horseshoe Falls. Everybody knows there ain't much in going over the Horseshoe Falls. They ain't very dangerous. Of course, no one would go over Niagara Falls. The real falls are 270 feet high, and it's most likely that if anyone went over in a barrel, the barrel is going to cling to the bottom and never come up, or else be smashed to pieces. Mrs. Taylor never went through the whirlpool like I did, and everybody knows that's the worst trip there is. I'm the second one who has gone through the whirlpool and lived to tell the story. End quote. Well, Martha, there's really nothing spectacular about being the second of anythings in stunts like this. Either you're first or you're a copycat. And second, she did go through the whirlpool because it's at the bottom of the falls. And speaking of copycats, the next female that tried to copy Martha was Maude Willard who attempted the exact same stunt the very next day. She ended up caught in the whirlpool going around and around for six hours. When poor Maud was finally freed from the whirlpool, she had died of suffocation. The fact remains that Martha, with all of her talk, never did go over the falls, though. Her comments in the press, however, did do some damage. It pretty much took the wind out of Taylor's sails, and she was resigned to selling little souvenirs and taking pictures with tourists on the cheap for the rest of her sad and lonely life. Niagara Falls Press on June 14th printed, Tomorrow Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor will open a fancy goods and souvenir stand in front of Mrs. Davey's store near the State Reservation. Mrs. Taylor is the woman who has, to her credit, the feat of going over the Horseshoe Falls of Niagara successfully. This wonderful trip was made on October twenty-fourth, nineteen 1901, and Mrs. Taylor, after a varied and unfortunate experience, has returned to the scene of her greatest deed in the hope that she may earn an honest living. All who know her feel that she is a wonderful woman. At her stand, she will sell little barrels, photos of herself, and small books descriptive of the remarkable feat she performed. She will be within the sound of the mighty cataract she conquered, and she should become one of the wonders of Niagara. Okay, so what I could find was this space was just a small section of sidewalk in front of another store. She never did retrieve her barrels, so she bought a new one in order to take photographs with it. Which reminds me, there have been many stories floating around, (laughs) pardon the pun, (laughs) about Mrs. Taylor sending a cat down the falls in her barrel the day before just to make sure it was safe. The proof, these journalists claim, is in the famous photo of her standing next to the barrel with a kitten on top, which must be the kitten from the falls. First of all, by the time that photo was taken, it had been many years since her daring escape. So the kitten couldn't possibly still be a kitten. And the barrel in that photo is actually the replacement barrel from the one that was stolen. Not to mention, there was no news coverage on a kitten going over the falls. And believe me, that would have been big news since when poor Miss Maud Willard died on September 7th in the Rapids, just as much press was given to her fox terrier that lived claiming it stole the air the girl needed to breathe. Annie Edson Taylor would sit at her table, chatting to those who would pass, and would encourage them to purchase her small booklet called Over the Falls for ten cents apiece. Bitterness and remorse took the place of the once adventurous soul. She had fallen into the life she had most feared for herself, completely dependent on the kindness of others to merely survive. Though she would put on a brave face for the sake of her customers, behind the closed doors, with the safety of pencil to paper, she would write, My life since going over the falls has been one of trial and persecution. Not once have I ever seen in any paper or magazine a true version of the trip over the falls, nor have the thousands of people who came to see me, with a few exceptions, ever thought of the fact that I had the brain to plan such a trip and the courage to make it. They thought of nothing but how much money I got. I know well enough that most people despise me for what I accomplished. They're cowards. But I don't care what they say or think. I know how the world heaps some glory on the achiever, and then just as quickly they treat that person with scorn. I'm no fool. I've learned the hard way how the world really cares. End quote. And <sighs> while I do have the deepest sympathy for her troubles, she had taken great pains to inform the world she was just in it for the money. A newspaper article dated March twentieth, 1921, would read, quote, Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor, the only woman who ever went over the Horseshoe Falls at Niagara and survived, and the first person to successfully shoot the falls in a barrel, is now an inmate of the Niagara County Infirmary at Lockport. She attributes her present ill health and approaching blindness to her terrible experience in plunging over the Great Cataract. When taken from the barrel she was semi-conscious and her clothes were covered with blood from cuts on her head she expected to become very wealthy as a result of her spectacular feat but realized little pecuniary benefit "A note found tucked in her belongings dated in April would read quote, "Though misfortune and other people's dishonesty I lost all of my fortune it is quite a change for me to come here but if all my plans materialize" I shall not remain here for long, end quote. There's the flicker of a survivor in there, after all. She would go on to scribble down some partially legible notes about a plan to take on the Falls again, but that would never come to fruition. She would pass away on April nineteen 1921, at the age of 83, completely destitute. Complimentary funeral services were held for her on May 5th, and she would be buried in Oakwood Cemetery in a special section designated to those who had contributed to Niagara Falls history. She would be buried beside fellow daredevil Carlyle D. Graham. In the same row, you'll also find Captain Matthew Webb, the first man to swim the English Channel, and Francis Abbott, the hermit of Goat Island. Quote, unlike many who died wealthy and whose names have faded away not long after their passing, Annie will never be forgotten by history because she is among those rare individuals who were the first to do something very significant that so many others had failed at doing until she came along. End quote. Just following her rescue from the barrel, one of the first questions she would be asked was Would you do it again? Quote, I would rather face a cannon knowing that I would be blown to pieces than to go over the falls again. End quote. Between 1901 and 2019, 28 people went over the falls. Only 12 lived to talk about it. There's been a kayak, a jet ski, two sets of pears, and even a turtle. The turtle lived, the owner, eh, not so lucky. Ever since the death of daredevil William Red Hill Jr. in 1951, going over Horseshoe Falls is considered illegal and they would be taken to jail. On August 5th, 1951, Red Hill Jr. decides he's going to take on Niagara Falls on what he calls the thing. It was actually a raft of 13 inner tubes tied together with rope and then wrapped in fishing net. It didn't take long once he entered the rapids. His inner tubes began popping. He would be swallowed up by the falls, and bits and pieces of the raft would eventually make their way to the surface. As for Hill, His body was not discovered until the next day. According to Wikipedia, it wasn't until 2011 that both the Canadian and American sides united to make daredevil attempts a stiff fine on top of jail time. So, if Annie was the first, that begs the question, who was the last? Not including anyone who threw themselves into the Niagara with the purpose of committing suicide This is what I found. As of right now in August of 2022, that honor goes to Kirk Jones. Kirk owns the distinction of being the first person to go over Horseshoe Falls without any flotation device and survive. On Monday, October 20th, 2003, without a lot of planning or forethought, Kirk jumped into the upper Niagara River at Table Rock on the Canadian side. Fully clothed and just let the current do its work. I felt like I was being swallowed by a living beast, he'd say some years later. Amazingly, he was able to emerge after being spun underwater from the whirlpool and swim to safety. Safety was at the moment a rock not so far from the falls. He was too exhausted and in too much pain to swim to shore. So, he was perfectly willing to stay put until emergency services arrived. From there, he was taken to the Greater Niagara General Hospital for treatment. To avoid being fined and legal trouble, he told the doctors at the hospital, it wasn't a stunt, it was a failed suicide attempt. His family and friends, apparently not aware of his get-out-of-jail-free-card tactic, told the officers that he had been planning to do this for a couple years for the fame and fortune that was sure to accompany it. Apparently, he hadn't read the whole Annie Edson Taylor story. His family went on to say that he was, quote-unquote, planning was unsophisticated and not in any way scientific. After being released from the hospital, being patched up for broken ribs, he was then escorted to jail. On December eighteenth, two 2003, Kirk Jones, who was 40 at the time, appeared before a judge and pled guilty to unlawfully performing a stunt and mischief in the Niagara parks. He was fined almost $3,000 and had to pay the almost $1,500 fine to the Journey Behind the Falls Boat Company for income lost due to having to put their tours on hold while Jones was fished off of his rock. And then he was Banned for life from Canada. Greeted by the throngs of reporters waiting outside the courthouse, he put on his best remorseful expression and said, I feel very happy to be alive. I ask that no one ever try such a terrible stunt again. And with his greatest attempt at sincerity, he added, I understand what I did was wrong. You'll never see an action in Niagara waters with my name written on it again. End quote. The Detroit News would report that Alice Cooper, lead singer of the rock band by the same name, would put Kirk Jones in a fancy hotel in Niagara Falls after his release. Kirk invited his friends from Michigan to join in his good fortune and ran up a room bill of several thousand dollars. He would enjoy some brief celebrity, but then, as if flipping a switch, it all stopped. He was back to the same person he was before, floundering to make a way in life. It would take almost 14 years, but he began his plans to take on the falls again. But this time, it was going to be different. Somehow, in 2003, no one caught his stunt on video. This time, he brought a drone with a controller he could wear on his wrist. But there had to be something more. Something to make him different. What other firsts were left? A snake. He built his website and advertised his epic event, See the Falls, Get the T-Shirt. He had T-Shirts made of himself and his yellow asp, Misty, overlaid on a picture of the falls, and it read, Believe in the Impossible, Kirk Jones and Misty, Conquer Niagara Falls, New York, 2017. (sighs) On April nineteenth, 2017, Kirk Jones, who promised to never tackle the falls again, showed up just above the rapids with an unnamed friend, unloaded an 8-foot rubber ball which had space for a grown man to fit with a zippered closure. Grown man and a snake, apparently. Later that day, tourists spotted the inflated ball spinning in the whirlpool just beyond the falls. When the mate of the mist retrieved it, the ball was empty. No sign of Jones, no sign of Misty the Snake. After a police search around the area, they discovered Kirk's 2001 Honda minivan with an empty snake cage inside. The next day, on the 20th, an employee of the park found the drone. The video showed the drone taking off, hovering over the river for several minutes, and then crashing. On June 2nd, the body of Kirk Jones was found washed up on the Niagara Riverbank in the village of Youngstown. He was 53. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode on the Bag of Bones podcast. I don't know how people say history is boring. I find fascinating stories everywhere. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.